Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Excuse me. I have a little cough there right before I go on the air just to celebrate the beginning of a new week. It is Monday, February 12th. February 12th. It is the middle of February already. Oh, my God. It feels like it was just Christmas. (sighs) Time flies. Time flies and we are getting closer and closer and closer to uh, not only uh, some important March elections, but, of course, to the 2024 presidential election. Saddle up, kids. So, I hope you had a good weekend. I hope that there was something in your weekend that brought you joy. Was there? Um, I want to... Tell you again, real quick, a little housekeeping note before we jump in to uh, Joe Biden speaking today. Um, I told you that on February 25th, that's Sunday, well, Al Franken is actually coming to City Winery to do four shows uh, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. And uh, I shared with you that I was going to be attending the 8.30 p.m. show on Sunday. And you know what? I'd like to invite you to join me. We're going to give away a pair of tickets. City Winery. It's uh, downtown. It's kind of by Restaurant Row. Um, the, there's four shows over Saturday and Sunday, but this is his last show. That's a Sunday, 8.30 p.m. show. I'm going to be there. Unlike you, I paid for my tickets, (laughs) but you have a chance to come for free. All you have to do is be, let's call it this, uh, make it easy on Paul. We'll do the second caller, 773-763. Nine two seven eight. Again, remember, if you're not used to calling in, but you'd love to join me Sunday, the 25th of February at 8.30 p.m., 773-763-WCPT. Just remember it that way, WCPT. Second caller gets a pair of tickets. Um, I have spoken with Al Franken before, and is it this week or next week? It is this week. This week, I am going to be talking to him this coming Wednesday. This coming Wednesday, um, we're scheduled to talk at uh, 4.30. Um, He is, of course, a former U.S. senator. He left when he was accused of inappropriate contact you know there was a picture of him where he looked like he was about to grab a woman's breast from a uso show he there he didn't wait for an investigation he just left congress Uh, all of his colleagues were encouraging him kirsten gillibrand kirsten gillibrand by the way has now said that she regrets pushing him out, that sh- that everyone should have waited until it was investigated, because there were two women that um, spoke up against him. One, 
was um, affiliated with conservative radio. And um, the other um, was not affiliated with conservative radio, but later admitted that, you know, it wasn't something done to grope her, that it was she knew he was doing it as a joke. However you feel about that, um, I personally think that just like with George Santos, there were Democrats who voted against a measure to expel George Santos because there had been all the investigations into him. None of them had been completed. And finally, the Ethics Committee did complete their investigation and felt that he not only was guilty of ethics violations, but quite possibly criminal violations. Then they voted to expel him. And I think that in most cases, the the wheels of justice should grind forward. I mean, right now, um, the, the question is, what constitutes enough evidence to get rid of somebody? I mean, I'm thinking of Bob Menendez, the senator, the Democratic senator from New Jersey, who is accused of a lot of things, taking bribes among them. He is facing some pretty serious charges. So prosecutors already feel that there's enough evidence to take him to trial. Is that the standard? Should we wait till the trial concludes? You know, these are the kinds of questions that really need to be discussed. And do we do we make these decisions on a case-by-case basis? Or do we just set a policy and one size fits all? Anyway, Al Franken has um, very slowly reemerged into the public eye. He is now ready to do stand-up again. He was filling in on The Daily Show. He was one of their guest hosts, and I read an article that said that he pulled the highest ratings of anybody. You know, they had some of their reporters fill in. They had Leslie Jones. They had Sarah Silverman, uh, Chelsea Handler, Charlemagne the God. They had lots of people taking a week at a time. But apparently nobody drew higher ratings than Al Franken. So um, join me at City Winery. Uh, He's going to be there two days, Saturday and Sunday, but I'm going to go Sunday the 25th at 830. And we're going to be giving away those tickets for that particular show. So keep an eye out for me and come on over and say hello. Our contests are open to anybody as long as they're at least 18 years old, live in the greater Chicagoland, northwest Indiana area, one entry per person, one winner per household. Void where prohibited by law. Listeners may only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. Complete rules are on our website, WCPT820.com. Now that we have that that particular um, contest, I would like to talk about Some of the remarks President Biden made today as he was speaking at the National Association of Counties, the National Association of Counties was having a legislative conference in Washington, D.C. And um, the president came to speak with them. You know, initially, I wasn't really paying attention to this because actually 
around um, later this afternoon, there's going to be what I think was potentially a much more consequential press conference. Um, President Biden is meeting with the King of Jordan, and they are going to talk to the media this afternoon. Um, so I wasn't really paying much attention to this until I saw some of the people posting clips on social media. President Biden was talking, again, to the National Association of Counties. But um, <laughs> he talked about his age, he talked about his memory, and he talked about uh, the Republican Party. And um, the quote where he talked about his age, the clip where he talked about his age and his memory is, I think, exactly how he should continue to talk about this as people make ridiculous comments that somehow he's over the hill and Trump is not. For every Biden gaffe, and by the way, remember when I was talking to former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh and he said, I was, you know, he said I was in Congress. I knew Biden, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And he's always been like this. You know, this isn't something that's developed in old age. He's always talked like this. But, um, you know, we see his age. We see him not always saying things clearly. And it's like, oh, my God. Whereas Trump. If if Joe Biden made one of the kinds of gaffes that Trump makes, oh, my God, it would be all that the headlines could bear. So I want you to this is kind of quick, but I think it's worth listening to Joe Biden uh, speaking uh, about his age and about his memory. Listen to this. We're promoting clean energy and industries of the future made here in America, made in America. What I didn't realize, and I've been around, I know I don't look like it, but I've been around a while. (laughs) I do remember that. But, you know, there's there's so much we're getting done. We're promoting clean energy. (laughs) President Biden also talked about the Republican Party, and he said pretty much what we heard a week ago from the former head of the Illinois Republican Party, Pat Brady, which is that the Republican Party really doesn't exist anymore. The party, if you are a certain age, if you're a baby boomer or a millennial, the Republican Party that was in existence when you first came to maturity doesn't exist anymore. Pat Brady said it's not the Republican Party. It's the party of Trump. All Trump, all the time. Anything he wants, anything he says, no core values just the party of Trump. Uh, President Biden talked to his audience about the fact that this is not your family's, your father's Republican Party. Listen to this. Folks, we've spent months working on a bipartisan border bill that included the most humane, fair reforms in the immigration system ever. 
It also included the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. It was a win for the American people, a win for your counties. But some of my extreme Republican friends, and by the way, this is not your father's Republican Party. I don't mean to take on, I'm not taking on all Republicans. I really mean it. The MAGA Republicans are a minority, but a powerful minority. They went out and they killed the deal. My predecessor said he didn't like it. It was a loss for him. We have to end the political games, folks. Who we work for. We work for the American people. And I'm going to continue making the case to them, the American people. He's really right. This is the party of Trump. Trump got rid of Ronna Romney McDaniel, one of his um, most outspoken toadies. Why? Because she wasn't loyal enough. They get what they deserve with this Trump worship. And there's something else I want to share with you. Um, I pulled this from social media again. It's another one of those montages where somebody pulled all the Trump gaffes all the times when he can't say a word and he, he his mouth just won't work. And when you hear one of them, you're like, oh, my God, that guy's lost it. But when you hear a bunch of them back to back to back, it is astounding to me that this is not front page news. We get this stupid report on the classified documents where a Republican prosecutor decides to weigh in with a lot of opinion. Oh, I don't want to go there. That makes me so mad. And that is like five stories on the front page of the New York Times. Even it was even three or four stories for the Washington Post. And yet Trump acts like somebody who is in the process of stroking out sometimes when he talks to people. And that what we just what take that. That's just who he is. What? What? I'm very confused. This makes no sense to me. How Donald Trump continues to get a pass on all of his bad behavior and the slightest thing from Joe Biden is front page news. And then if the worst happens and somehow Trump gets back in office, the New York Times is going to be like, well, look what the American people screwed up again. No, New York Times, you you did this. You have blood on your hands. Anyway, I want to share this montage with you. And again, this is different speeches, different times, but all recent. And listen to listen to this man and think to yourself, this is not just the leader of the Republican Party. This man is the Republican Party as it exists right now. Listen to this. There shouldn't be voter ID. Now, you have voter ID to buy a loaf of bread. You have, you have ID to buy a loaf of bread. You have everything. You have pictures. When they, the windmills are 
driving them crazy. They're driving, they're driving the whales, I think a little batty, and they're washing up on shore at levels never seen before. And our veterans don't have cell phones, do they? All the currently dry canals will be brimming and used to irrigate everything, including your own homes and bathrooms and everything. You're going to be happy. And I law enforcement to arrest their leading political opponent and leading by a lot, including Obama. I'll tell you what, you take a look at Obama and take a look at some of the things that he's done. This is the same. And you know, Jim Cavazel, who's a big actor, and as Jim Cavazel was a great guy. You know who he is. Also throws hats. Do you notice the hats? He's throwing hats. And he does it the same way. He gets low and he flicks his wrist like that. And we don't like these copycats, do we? It's crazy. You know, I don't do the hat thing anymore because I don't want to. I watch him. I say, and her parents are so proud. Huh? 19 years. She's almost there. Oh, couldn't do it. And their windmills are causing whales to die in numbers never seen before. Nobody does anything about that. They're washing up a show. A crazy Nancy Pelosi who ruined San Francisco. How's her husband doing, by the way? Anybody know? Everyone thought Bush was going to win. And then they took a poll and they found out Trump was up by about 50 points. Everyone said, what's going on right here? They thought Bush, because Bush supposedly was a military person. Great. You know what he was a military? He got us into the... Uh, he got us into the Middle East. How did that work out, right? But they all thought that uh, Bush might win. Jeb, remember? And we did with Obama. We won an election that everyone said couldn't be won. I will direct a completely overhauled DOJ to investigate every radical DA and AG in America for their illegal, racist, and reverse enforcement of the law. The illegal immigrants that came in, they've got my mugshot on. We would win California in a general election if they didn't have a rigged voting system. All the other people that have suffered, the J6 people. Deranged Jack Smith. Has anyone ever heard? I wonder, I wonder what his name used to be. Jack Smith. Sounds so nice, doesn't it? We can actually dampen our forests with water that costs us nothing that will come pouring down from the north. Wouldn't that be nice? If you had dampened floors, you wouldn't have forest fires. So, records. Al Capone. Was not indicted so much. We're only allowed a small amount of water when they take a shot. That's why rich people from Beverly Hills, generally speaking, don't smell so good, you know. Lindsey Graham, wherever you are. Lindsey, thank you. Oh, no, no. He helps me on the left. If you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. Listening to your lawyer's advice or were you listening to your own instincts? I was listening to different people, and when I... Added it all up, the election was rigged. So now when we go into to obliterate a country with our army tanks, at least we won't pollute it with the pollutants pouring out of the back of the tank. Kill a baby in the seventh month or the ninth month or after birth. And they're I'm built a little differently, I guess, because I have had people come up to me and say, how do you do it, sir? How do you do it? Stand up to the communists, the Marxists, the atheists, and the evil and demonic forces that want to destroy our country. They're destroying our country. I took their fire and I did it gladly. Even his handicapped I golf, he said he's a six. He's not a six. I want to stay focused. We're going to have a little bit of a fun with that, I think, because that's a tough one. Came to see me, sir. 
We have a new fighter jet. We think it's environmentally friendly. I said, who cares if it's if you're dropping bombs all over the place? I think they want to keep you somewhere around your home. They, they don't want to build highways or something. They got some crazy plan. I stayed in one of those houses and they had a shower head. And I want to really work hard on my hair. And I don't want to take that. Yep. It's pretty amazing when you hear it all together like that. Trump made a speech, I don't know, three or four days ago. And um, T.J. Duclos, who is a member of the Biden-Harris 2024 campaign, put out this statement. Every single time Donald Trump opens his mouth, he's confused, deranged, lying or worse. Tonight, he lied more than two dozen times slurred his words, confused basic facts, and placated the gun lobby weeks after telling parents to, quote, get over it after their kids were gunned down at school. But you won't hear about any of that if you watch cable news or read this weekend's paper or watch the Sunday shows. Beltway reporters, Washington means D.C. reporters, may be numb to Trump's horrifying candidacy of chaos, division and violence. But the American people are the ones who will suffer and die if he's allowed anywhere near the Oval Office again. And he's absolutely right. And I hope more members of the Biden campaign speak out about this, just as everybody spoke out. When Robert Hur put out that ridiculous report on how Biden handled classified documents, well, uh, no, he didn't. He doesn't deserve um, any kind of prosecution. Um, we have no evidence that he it was done willfully or consciously. But you know, he's an he's an elderly man, and he couldn't remember the year his his son died. What? Why were they even asking them that? And do you know how many times when Donald Trump was questioned about his handling of the documents, do you know how many times he just said, I don't know, don't remember, don't know, don't remember, don't know, don't remember, don't know, don't remember. But that, that's not newsworthy. Biden was asked about the question about his son. And he said, you know, I just decided it was none of his damn business. And he was right. He was right. It was none of Robert Hur's damn business. And at least now, at least for people who um, are paying a little bit of attention, I think that the message that this was an incredibly political, incredibly biased, egregiously overstepping report at least this time, the Democrats aren't just taking it lying down. They're fighting back. And that's what we need to see more of. We need to see more statements like this. Trump lied more than two dozen times, slurred his words, confused basic facts. He still thinks he ran against Obama, for God's sake. But that's not news. Why? Because he said it so many times. Uh, does that give him a pass? Oh, yeah, he said that before. Whatever. 
Let's take a break. Get on with the rest of our day right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am very happy to welcome back to our program uh, Susan Chaud, who is another professor at North Central College in Naperville, one of our favorite places to find experts to join our show and uh, talk with us about the news of the day. She is also a political science professor there, as is uh, William Muck, our other good friend who we have on from time to time. Suzanne, thank you, thank you, thank you for what? Oh, oh my God. I am so sorry. Here I go. I'm introducing the guest who will be on at 2.30 tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, Paul just straightened me out. Looks like uh, Joe Biden has good company in the memory department, um, which is why, actually, that's one of the things that um, is in um, Paul's job description back at the studio. If um, if Joan goes through the guardrails and over the cliff, please do everything in your power to pull her back. And I thank you for that, Paul. Uh, I have a few rope burns because you pulled me back pretty fast. But other than that, I think I will survive. I apologize, Ty. I'm joined by Ty Rushing, who we've also talked to before as the chief correspondent for the Iowa starting line. Oh, Ty, you may have to do this interview all by yourself. You know, I just hope the Suzanne fans out there aren't disappointed they're getting me a face. <laughs> well, I appreciate uh, you being here today, and I'm very sorry that I I tried to, I don't know, I tried to jump ahead to Tuesday. What, is, what does that say about me? I don't know. Well, um, we want to talk what's going on here right now. Um, I know that even though we have said goodbye to the Iowa caucuses, that there is a lot going on in the Iowa State House. Um, let's start with some of the anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans bills that are there. Talk to me about this. Uh, it seems like that is the biggest thing of the legislature this year, uh, which is a repeat of last year. I mean, um, uh, the Republicans in charge of our state are absolutely obsessed with the LGBTQ community. And I think uh, One Iowa, which is an LGBTQ advocacy organization here in Iowa, uh, has said that there's, there have been more than 40 anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in the legislature this year. And tonight uh, will be a huge public hearing on Governor Kim Reynolds' anti-LGBTQ bill. Uh, so this is the one that's going to require trans people to have a special signifier on their birth certificate indicating that they are trans. Uh, make all public facilities have a separate restroom for trans people, uh, legally defined man, woman, father, uh, and mother, uh, which would exclude LGBTQ families from some of those, or, and LGBTQ people from some of those definitions. Uh, it, it's pretty wide ranging. Good God. I want to back up for a second. You said something about how on a driver's license now, that if somebody's yeah. trans, there's something on the driver's license that identifies um, them as trans? So I think they're actually going to take that for note. So right now, uh, if you are a trans island, you can you can have your driver's license, your Social Security, your birth certificate, all of that changed over to, you know, um, match your identity. Well, 
uh, under this proposal, it would there would be a special signifier on your driver's license and your birth certificate uh, noting that you are transgender. Now, I think they're going to remove the driver's license provision um, after listening to some trans. I was explaining why that was problematic, but they are still keeping the birth certificate provision in there. Oh, my goodness. Is um, is there any opportunity for the public to um, have any influence on this bill to soften it, to eliminate it? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a, a public hearing last week, which is why they removed the driver's license uh, portion after trans Iowans just spoke out in numbers against it. And then today at 5 p.m., there is going to be a public hearing at the Iowa Capitol, uh, Iowa uh, so LGBTQ Iowans and allies have been rallying folks to come out and speak. Uh, there's going to be a huge demonstration at the Capitol today. Uh, but on the other hand, the governor has uh, used her, her on her campaign side, has, used, has uh, called out for people who support the bill to come out there, too. So uh, there's going to be a lot of people filling the Iowa Capitol Rotunda today. Uh, the meeting room is going to be jam-packed. It's going to be a one-hour public hearing. And typically what they do in these public hearings is they alternate between pro and con speakers. And in a, is there, are they time limited? Um, I know when people speak, uh, when there's public comment for the Chicago City Council meetings, they're limited to three minutes. And, you know, they're mm-hmm. basically their microphone gets cut off after then. Is, is, is there going to be a limit to how long someone can speak? Because, of course, that determines how many people they get to hear from in an hour. Correct. So uh, it's usually up to the chair of the committee or the subcommittee to determine how long people can speak. But generally, they give people one to three minutes to speak during these. It obviously depends on how many people have signed up to speak. And with a contentious issue like this one, I'm going to guess they're going to give people about a minute apiece. Again, we won't formally know until the hearing starts at 5 p.m., but I'm guessing they're going to give people a minute apiece and they're going to alternate between pro and con. So the hearing is going to be at 5 p.m., and it's going to, at least the public comment section is going to be an hour. What happens then at 6 p.m.? Uh, then they'll, like, usually the chair is like, all right, public hearing is over, uh, and they'll call it good. Hmm. So I believe the next step of this bill, if they don't kill it, which odds are they won't, or they're, they're, it's going to stay alive, um, would, it's already passed out of subcommittee and committee, and so this public hearing was a request. Because they try to do public hearings on like huge issues like this one, so the next step is for it to hit the house floor. So, and what would I mean, be the time frame for that? Uh, it really depends on when they have enough bills. I mean, we're in final week right now, so they're kind of narrowing down which bills are still alive and which are still, you know, eligible to some, you know, potentially become law. So basically, once it gets past this, it's just going to be eligible for floor debate whenever you decide to have floor debate. When and then um, after assuming some version of this bill passes the House, then it would go to the Iowa Senate. It has not. This bill hasn't gone through the Senate yet, correct? Correct. It has to go through and pass the floor debate in the House before it goes to the Senate. And there was not. So sometimes with bills like this, when you'll see similar legislation uh, introduced in both chambers, and this particular bill comes from the governor's office, and it was only introduced in the, the House. What does that mean? I mean, I know I understand vaguely, at least, of the process yeah, yeah. when a legislator puts out a bill. 
what happens if a bill comes from the governor's office? Does the process change in any way? No, no. It's the, the process is very much the same. Uh, it's just introduced by the governor's office instead of the legislature. Uh, and, like, I believe all of Iowa's executive offices can introduce legislation. I mean, we've got bills from the state auditor's office. Uh, we got bills from the secretary of state's office. So, you know, if you're an executive officer in the state, you, your office can introduce some legislation that you think would be helpful. Or if you're the governor, you want to score points on the backs of trans islands. I assume that the governor is putting this bill out because they feel that it's it's a winner, that it will somehow boost their popularity. I mean, it's not exactly, maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is that people have not been clamoring for this. I mean, there haven't been big protests at the governor's office saying, we need a trans bill. So what is the political upside for this? Well, so Governor Reynolds, in her condition of the state address, announced huge changes to Iowa's area education associations. These are... They're primarily known for helping take care of special needs students in the state. Well, that bill was very, very, very unpopular with people all across the political spectrum. In fact, she couldn't even get it out of the house. Out of the house. Well, the Senate, all, the Senate version of that bill is still alive. So, okay, the governor is coming off of, you know, Iowa caucuses. She went all in on Ron DeSantis and he got his butt kicked. Then she has her AEA bill and she can't even get, out of, get it out of this very conservative Republican-controlled Iowa house. So that's two big political black eyes right there. And so um, what do you do next? Well, you say, hey, guess what? We're going to the southern border because that is one of those issues that helps rally Republicans. And then you also say, oh, also, we're going to do this legislation to punch down on trans people. And the timing of the introduction of the governor's bill, it came one day after a subcommittee that would have removed transgender Iowans from Iowa Civil Rights Code. Uh, like that bill actually struck down itself in the House. It didn't advance. So the governor's bill came one day later. And so now everyone is talking about this bill and not her inability to get her AEA bill through. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> there's always a reason. The, there's always a benefit to somebody's political career when they when they do this kind of thing. What is your sense? I mean, I sitting in Illinois, I look at Iowa and I think of Iowa as a very conservative place. Um, maybe it's not as conservative as I've judged it to be. So, you know, is this going to be a winning issue? Is she finally going to get that big success she's been going for? I mean, to be, until the caucus, honestly, Governor Reynolds has been very, very successful in implementing her agenda and in being one of the most transformed governors in the history of Iowa. Like, you know, not all transformation is good, but the fact is the fact. She has been a transformative and influential and got a lot done that she's wanted to get done. So this session, she kind of ran into those roadblocks with her AEA bill. And so we'll, we'll see. I don't, I don't think this one is really, really super popular. Because as you said, no one's been out there clamoring like, oh, we need more, you know, restrictions yeah. and discrimination. We need more rules. Right. Like trans islands make up 0.29% of the population. We have a little over 3 million people here, you know, uh, but this has just been one of those culture war issues that Iowa Republicans have like attached their name to and piggybacked on hardcore. It is always so depressing when a party 
or a a politician decides that the best way to improve their standing is to go after someone, go after a certain segment of the population to other them and make them feel like the enemy. Uh, Is it possible that this could, that there could be backlash to this that she's not seeing? Well, I mean, you're obviously going to have backlash from people who just aren't in favor of this thing. And, you know, you know, you are, you, and so well, I think I've mentioned this before, like I was a very interesting state where like politically, you know, it's the third Democrat, the third Republican, and the third independents. And so, but you also have some Republicans who don't support this, but then you also have some Republicans who do. And the same way, the same thing goes for independents. So like, I don't know if this is going to be uh, a winning issue, you know, down ballot, the one to this fall, I mean, because the governor's office, She's not going to be her. Her office is not up again until 2026. So I'm not sure if there's going to be some sort of down ballot winning issue. But again, it's just one of those culture war culture war things. Especially if you spin it as, oh look, this is the women's bill of rights. Uh, I, believe, I believe they call it the women's bill of rights or some 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 sort of like you know name like that is how they're coining this. And it's like, what rights are particular are being given to women in this? <laughs> when you're just, you know, using it to punch down on trans people and disguising it as a way to protect women. Unbelievable. Um, Ty, there are other things going on in your state that I want to talk to you about, but we need to take a break. I'm talking to Ty Rushing, who is the chief correspondent for the Iowa Starting Line, a courier news outlet in Iowa. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm very pleased to welcome back uh, Ty Rushing, who reports for the Iowa Starting Line. It is the Courier News publication in Iowa. And Ty, uh, what is this about a chaplain bill and how it connects to a, a satanic temple? What's going on in Iowa, Ty? <laughs> Oh, you have been missing out. Oh, goodness. Okay. So <laughs> the school chaplain bill is a piece of legislation. There's versions in the Iowa House and the Iowa Senate that would allow school boards, school boards directly, to hire unqualified, uncertified chaplains to provide support services in schools. Uh, again, there are no, <laughs> there's no qualifications on this. And no one of degree the in social of work or anything like that. No, no, none of that. None of that pesky. None of that pesky paperwork to get in the way to put you in front of a bunch of children. So, one of the legislators, uh, legislators who wrote this bill, um, accidentally slipped up and said ministers instead of chaplains because it's supposed to be, you know, open to all religions. And it kind of gave the game away right there that obviously this is just another way to. You know, uh, put one religion above others in a public space. Well, if you recall back in December, the uh, Satanic Temple of Iowa had a display in the Iowa Capitol. And people uh, on the far right lost their absolute minds about it. In fact, a former Mississippi congressional candidate drove to Iowa and destroyed the display. And Ron DeSantis was talking about he was going to donate to the the guy's legal fund. I mean, it was a kind of a huge, ridiculous December story. Well, 
let's go back to last week or two weeks ago, actually. The uh, the Satanic Temple returned, and this time one of their ministers showed up to one of the subcommittees about the chaplain bill and said, "I personally oppose HF twenty seventy three because I believe in the separation of church and state. But if the bill does pass, I'm excited. I'm excited for the opportunity to present the Satanic Temple to provide support services and programs to school children in our state." <laughs> and- I'm sorry, <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. <clears throat> No, no, you should be laughing because, listen, listen, if you don't laugh at us, who will? (laughs) So what was the reaction to that statement about, gosh, we're really glad about this and we can't wait to be in the schools? Believe it or not, none of the uh, Republican legislators, actually none of the legislators in general, commented on that during the subcommittee. (laughs) There were no comments at all. But... Uh, a week after that subcommittee, there were separate bills to ban the Satanic Temple from the <laughs> from uh, erecting displays in the Capitol. So, <laughs> and again, this is you know this is a violation of the First Amendment, but you know whatever. This is Iowa. No. <laughs> Anything goes apparently. Yeah, it's okay if they do it. It's not okay if somebody else does it. Correct. So, um, well, I I would really like to come to Iowa just to meet these satanic temple people. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I think they sound like they would be an interesting group to share a meal with. I don't know, Ty. Um, one of the I things that, agree. yeah, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Deborah Caldwell Stone from the American Library Association about books and attacks on libraries and. There was a glimmer of good news out of Florida because legislators there seemed to be pushing back against book bans. They were going to uh, propose a law that you couldn't uh, submit a request to ban books en masse. You could, first of all, that you had to be a parent. You had to have a kid in the system if you were going to ban something from the school library. And that one person couldn't submit like 50 books that they want banned. It would have to be, if that was going to be the case, each and every one of those had to be uh, separated and separate. Where do things stand with schools and book banning and libraries in the state of Iowa right now? Okay, so we had last session, we had SF-496, which was the book banning law here in Iowa. That law, but right now it is currently in the middle. This is, of course, and uh, it is unenforceable. So that's the school book ban one. Well, this session we've had several bills that are very, very, very roundabout ways of book ban- banning books in public libraries, and I'll explain why they're very roundabout. So all of these bills, the biggest thing they have in common is common. There's about there's been three of them so far. The biggest thing they have in common is they change how libraries are overseen. So currently, library boards oversee uh, public libraries in Iowa, and they are independent. So the mayor appoints them, the city council approves them, but then they have no further jurisdiction over the boards, and they are in charge of hiring and firing directors and overseeing everything with public libraries, including the finances. Well, uh, there's been several bills introduced, and most of these bills would circumvent that process by allowing city councils to directly oversee the library leadership. And the reason they're doing this 
this is uh, what a lot of people are speculating, is because uh, we had a library referendum in one of Iowa's most conservative communities this past fall. So Pella. Pella is like, you know, it's a Christian reform, heavy Dutch, uh, you know, like just a very, very conservative community. Well, they have some LGBTQ books in the library there. Some residents didn't like this. Some residents supported this. And it became a whole debacle. And it got to the point where they put it on the ballot of whether or not the local city council should be in charge of the local the library. Because uh, the people wanted the library director fired for not pulling the books. Well, the referendum failed. And the library board remained in charge of libraries there. Now, you cut to a couple months later, the legislature is trying to change the law so that the city council would have that authority versus the library board. And this is the, this is how the whole roundabout way of going to ban books works. Correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't legislators supposed to pay attention to the will of the people? And if the people vote something down, that means the people don't want that thing. And therefore, don't just find a way or work around. Drop it. Move on to something else. That doesn't seem to be happening. No, no, it does not seem to be happening. I mean, so interestingly enough, one of the hearings uh, was supposed to take place last Monday. And the senator in charge of that hearing actually canceled it and pulled a bill after meeting with uh, librarians and library board members from across the state. Uh, of course, uh, the same senator introduced another bill that I covered here in for today. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but like it, and it removed some of the provisions that were in that previous version of the bill. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, no one has spoken in favor of these bills. Uh, if you look at the online comments, no one is in favor. The Iowa Library Association, which is a subsidiary of the ALA, just dropped a new letter today that had more than 70 signatures from city leaders across the state who do not support this bill. <sighs> and yet it's still, you know, it's still advanced uh, during the hearing today. Unbelievable. <clears throat> if you uh, listeners, if you would like to read um, the Iowa starting line, you can go online. It's iowastartingline.com. And if you go there, scroll down. Scroll all the way down and there will be videos. And one of the videos is Ty rushing, uh, trying cotton candy. Um, and apparently, according to the byline for this article, uh, Ty rushing has a certain area of expertise when it comes to cotton candy. Would you like to explain this video, Ty? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So you found a uh, I tries video. So uh, I used to do this every Friday. I just haven't I've been pretty much walked over the last few months, but called uh, called Thai tries where I try weird foods. And so <laughs> cotton candy has been one of my regular features. And I've tried everything from margarita flavored cotton candy to pickle flavored cotton candy. Ew. And so, I mean, yeah, I know you, you listen, you name a cotton candy variety. And the odds are very high that I've tried it. <laughs> well, in the in the still frame, you appear to be holding what looks kind of like a almost like a, a sandwich cookie. And if I'm not mistaken, I think instead of cream in the middle, it has a couple of pieces of cotton candy. No, 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 no. It's no? A, you're, you're, you're like halfway there. So it is a, it is a sandwich cookie. It's Oreo. And it's a cotton candy flavored Oreo. Huh. So, huh. Yeah. 
anything you want to share with our listeners about cotton candy? Anything that those of us who are not experts need to know? Uh, so if you were cotton candy, uh, less is more. Do not <laughs> eat a lot of cotton candy in one setting. Otherwise, you will get a tummy ache. Okay. <laughs> is there, you know, is there a best... Um, this was a cotton candy Oreo. What's the best cotton candy? Is it the kind that you get at the state fair where they make it right there in front of you? Oh, you can't beat that. Like fresh cotton candy is, it is it's the best. Like that's the best variety of cotton candy. Uh, I actually was a carny and I made cotton candy <gasps> when I was in high school. That was like one of my Really? Kids. And so, yes. But that is also how I found out you get a tummy ache if you eat too much cotton candy. <laughs> Kids. You know, who thought it was a good idea to give a 14-year-old uh, permission to eat as much cotton candy as they want? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, kids, you've just, you know, you want to be a political correspondent. Apparently, being a carny and making cotton candy in your teenage years puts you on a path to report on bills and state legislatures. Um, and maybe one day you can be Ty Rushing's intern and assistant. Um, Ty, it is always fun uh, to talk to you. And I'm so interested to know this. I, next time we talk, I want more um, of an insight into your past. Uh, if you were a carny at 14, I can't imagine what other stories <laughs> you've got to share with us. And I look forward to them. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, and I look forward to sharing them. I have some, I've had some weird jobs. Okay. Ty Rushing's weird jobs. Um, He is the chief political correspondent for the Iowa starting line. He's a veteran Iowa journalist. He's an Emmy nominated filmmaker, and he's the co-founder and president of the Iowa Association of Black Journalists. And he knows how to make great cotton candy. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. If you get the uh, Indivisible newsletter in your email box, which is a couple of things you can do today, they send it out every day, and there's always at least two suggestions for activities that you can do. Frequently, one of those two activities revolves around our neighbor to the north, Wisconsin. There is a lot going on in Wisconsin. Um, We are welcoming Anne Egan Wacaw, who's an urban native vote organizer for Wisconsin Native Vote and a member of the Menominee Indian Tribe. Anne, welcome, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for saying my native name right, Waka. I love it. Uh, uh, <laughs> wh- why? How do most people say it? Walker. Oh. Wakao. All kinds of different things. Oh, but the, yeah. It's Waka. That's my, parent, my, my parents and my father's name. So, yeah, Waka. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that I that I said it correctly. Um, I was once, you know, my last name is Esposito. And when I was in high school, I was once called up in front of an assembly. And instead of Esposito, they said Zapparito. 
which oh my I, God. I guess to the largely Polish community, Zapparito and Esposito were, you know, so similar as to not make any difference. So I feel your pain. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I want to talk to you about gerrymandering. We know uh, we talk about it all the time on this radio station about how gerrymandered Wisconsin is. Uh, but there's a special reason that the Wisconsin, Wisconsin native vote wants this gerrymandering to come to an end. Would you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, well, let me, for, first of all, the Native American communities have been in Wisconsin for thousands of years, yet we've not ever experienced fair and equal access to the ballot. And our communities are currently divided, which dilutes our power. So that's where we're really working towards making sure our Native voices are heard. And the, by doing this, it also helps us um, have accurate representation of protecting our sovereignty and our culture. The, with the current situation as it is now, with the current map that exists now, is there any opportunity to uh, elect somebody from the Menominee tribe or any other tribe to any kind of political office? You know, I can't answer that question because I, I don't ever rehear, don't recall hearing about any of our people running for office. Um, I know my father was asked once, but he didn't. But no, I, I could not answer that. But I can say that our votes are diluted in a way that we can't get fair representation. For example, in Redcliffe, um, band of the Lake Superior Chippewa, they're in Bayfield County, which is completely cut in half. So that totally dilutes the vote there. Mm-hmm. So those are the things we're talking about. So I hope we get some people to run. We did have um, Ada Deerway back when, and that was amazing, but she's the last I've heard of. What do you think the reason is that there hasn't been a Native candidate? Well, that could be a reason. Um, you know, personally, I know that... Um, they're so focused, and our leaders are on, on governmental affairs, making sure people have the resources to adequate health care, um, mental health care, to make sure that there's funding for um, programs on our reservation. So I, I can't really answer that, but if you have me on again, I'll be able to. <laughs> oh, well, of course. <laughs> it goes without saying. Okay. It's on my note. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what what is Wisconsin Native Vote doing and working on right now? What is of greatest importance to the organization? Well, our greatest importance is getting our people to the polls. So by doing that, we um, go out into the communities. We work with all eleven tribes. We work talk to the Great Lakes Intertribal Council, and um, that represents all the tribes, all eleven tribes in the state. And um, we are diligent in doing a lot of one-on-one. In fact, when I applied for this position two years ago, I couldn't believe it's only been two years ago. I'm having such a good time doing this job. Um, <laughs> that um, I said the only way we're going to get to our people is by going to where they go. And I know that's kind of an or- organizer's tactic, but for us, we have to, we get to go to the fun places like the powwows, to feasts, to cultural events, to community health fairs. So that's what we're doing is we're focusing on getting our people to the polls and doing the one-on-one. And um, 
our way, like I said, is going into the community, having these one-on-one um, conversations, because a lot of our people, and us as the sons of Native vote, we work to combat historic voter disenfranchisement and contemporary barriers, like voter, like registering people to vote, um, working to improve policies that impact our communities, access to polls. So there's a lot of reasons that we're out there working hard for our people. And um, some of the things, big things that we had to fight, for example, would be um, harm to our environment. I can speak to that very well because my father led one of, was one of the leaders, people who led the fight against the Exxon mine up in northern Wisconsin, which actually would have polluted the Wolf River, which is designated as a pristine river, which is what my father had it designated as, which I'm proud to say. So we're out um, uh, going all over the state. We don't stop. Like some people do their elections, their, their work, their election work around the election period only. We do it 24-7. And we're blessed that we do have such organizations that we can go to, um, like on the reservations of Powell, as the health, health, kit, health fairs. But in Milwaukee, we have a very large, large um, concentration of Native votes voices here. So that's why I'm, I'm one of the people, I'm, my main area is Milwaukee, and I'm just honored to be able to be doing this work. I know the Menominee tribe and the Ho-Chunk tribe are, um, have um, a basis in Wisconsin. What other tribes are there? Um, we have, I'll start from the top, we have the Red Cliff Band of the Lake Superior Chippewa, the Bad River Band of the Lake Superior Chippewa, we have the Ray. We have St. Croix, we have Lac de Flambeau, we have Forest County Potawatomi, Mole Lake, um, like I said, the Menominee, we have the um, Stockbridge Muncie, Ho-Chunk, and if I'm forgetting one, I'm going to be that very upset with myself. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, we have 11 tribes, and um, we work really hard with all of them. And I'm happy to say that we're welcomed. They do welcome us coming in because we're not self-centered. As is the Indian way, we work to make sure all Native people can get to the polls. We don't tell them how to vote. We don't tell them who to vote for. We just say, here's how you, what you need to do to go to the polls. These are what you can take to you to register. We also try and register them as well. And just any information they need, but again, we don't tell them who to vote for at all. That's not part of our our, our um, work. Mm-hmm. And how many by by population? How many members of Native tribes live in Wisconsin? Large numbers. Well, in um, the last election, um, twenty twenty, there was an estimated seventy one thousand possible voters. In Wisconsin, as for the total um, population, can you believe I don't know that? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I should know that. I should know that. <laughs> well, I don't know it for Illinois, so uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the same boat as you. Why is, why is the fight against gerrymandering so important in Wisconsin, Anne? Well, it's important because we have to get our voices heard. And by having diluted maps, it totally... We don't count. It's like we don't exist. We don't count. Our tribal people are at the point now where when we're out talking to our members, they're actually getting excited about voting, and they understand that it's important to vote. And people have been turned away, told that they're at the wrong polling place, or they're not registered. 
and that's not going to wash anymore. And, and my my personal story is when I um, came to um, my community that I'm in, I registered to vote, and the woman was wonderful, asking questions, what's your age, birthday, address, and then she said, where were you born? I said, Menominee Reservation, and I was really proud of saying that. And she said, what? I said, I was born on the Menominee Reservation. And she said that you can't vote. Indians can't vote. I said, yes, I can. I said, I was born in Wisconsin on Menominee Reservation. It's a county and it's a reservation. And I said, I voted before. And she got really upset. She said, you voted before? And I told her, yes, I have. And I will continue to vote. So then she ended up going to the head of the poll and talking. And she, she kind of got, you could tell there were some heated exchanges there. She came back and she said, ma'am, I wasn't being racist. I was just following policy. And that story resonates with our people. What do you think of that? What what policy did she explain that um, that when this job was explained to me, the policy was that nobody who lives on a reservation gets to vote? What policy? (laughs) I don't know what she was talking about, but I will give her the benefit of the doubt because I believe she may have been old enough where she remembered that we didn't have the right to vote. We were the last group to get the vote, so she may very well have um, recalled that. But, you know, when I tell that story, people are aghast, but I tell that to people who think that their voices don't matter, because it does matter. It's so easy to walk away when something like that is said to you. And Mm -hmm. I did it, and I tell our people, we can't walk away. We have to make sure we get to the polls and vote. Yeah. And, you know, you you knew the law and you knew you were in the right. But I can see someone who's either very young or very old be com- be completely uh, pushed around, especially by somebody who's so emphatic. You can't vote. I know you can't exactly. vote. The people who were behind you were just aghast. They couldn't believe it. <laughs> and I was, too. It was one of those days where everything went wrong. So the guy with the card started pouring. And then she said that. And I'm like, yes, I can. <laughs> yeah. I thought, am I really hearing this? So I, I, I share the story often, like I said, with our Native people, because it, it's something that, you know, it's out there. It really is. And we have to be careful. Um, being told for, that they're not registered, that happens. Well, yes, I am registered. Well, we don't have you here. Well, I know I'm in there. Maybe an hour later they'll figure it out. But so there's all these little tactics, even voting locations, harder for people to get to the polls in Milwaukee and on the reservations because some reservations have, like, you know, the, the area may consist of three different polling places. So well, that's been the other working. the other tactic uh, used by Republicans in addition to gerrymandering um, in areas where they perceive that their candidates may not be popular enough to win. Well, let's just... Let's just close a number of polling places. Let's reduce the hours. Let's confuse people as to where it is and when it's open. And, um, and you know, it's, it's really sad, you know, that a party that knows it's not popular enough to win the vote decides to resort to what most of us would call cheating. That is sad. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you, Anne, about uh, more things going on in Wisconsin. Um, Anne Egan Waka and I are going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
And I'm joined by Ann Egan Walkaw, who's an urban native vote organizer for Wisconsin, Wisconsin Native Vote. She's also a member of the Menominee Indian Tribe. And, and this isn't, well, at least as far as I know, I don't think it's a Wisconsin issue, but I've been reading a lot about um, Chicago museums who have a Native American artifacts. And in what is probably a long overdue move, a lot of those museums are taking those artifacts off display unless they get specific permission from uh, the various uh, Native groups that um, are represented by those artifacts. What do you think about that? Um, I think it's a, a show of respect that we deserve. I'm not the the authority on this, but I know that there have been things placed in museums that shouldn't be there. For example, eagle feathers, they should never be encased in anything because we consider eagle feathers alive and they give our prayers up to the creator. So, yes, um, also now our tribes have their own museums as well, which is great. So if you get a chance to come to Manami Reservation, come see our historical um building. It's beautiful, and it has a lot of wonderful things. Can I add one thing, though? Sure. Remember when you're asking me the name of all the 11 tribes? Mm-hmm. Um, my son was asked that in high school. Um, the teacher said, well, Indians don't dress up in the, those costumes anymore. They were talking to Indians, and my son said, um, ma'am, they, they wear regalia, and yes, they still wear it. And she said, well, they don't. He said, I was just at a powwow with my mother, and I saw the full regalia. And then she said, quick, answer Tell me all the tribes in Wisconsin. And he got, he was short one, and I think I was short one, but um, I will say that I do work with the Ho-Chunk Nation as well. I've been working with them for two years, and they're a great group of people, very welcoming, and um, all the tribes, like I said, are very welcoming to us, and we work together and go to the legislature before we move in or go into the tribes and work with community members and such. So thank you for letting me add that piece. Well, I'm glad you told that story. And there's a there's a sense that both this teacher and the poll worker that you had your discussion with about whether or not you could vote. It's one thing to not know or to question. But the way you've described both of these exchanges, I sense that they were a bit almost combative. Was I sensing that right? And if so, what the heck is that all about? I don't know. Um, I know that my son felt like it was a combative a move by her part. And um, my father always taught me when people like to educate them, but let the negative just go off your shoulder. But I, I, I used to work for the Wisconsin Education Association Council, and they were very, very good about getting the, the truth about Native um, culture into the curriculums in schools across the state. So, you know, there are people trying, and there are a lot of people who really care. And that's great to hear. But, yeah, the, to hear that someone would say that to my son, he told me that well after because he didn't like to like me to worry about him in school. My daughter said the same thing happened to her. So you uh, know, it's just something we're going to have to not live with, but we will work on fixing it. That's just, um, you know, we've we've heard a lot about what's being taught in schools for the last few years and how it's being taught a lot of it having to do with whether or not African-American history is worth teaching or whether um, African-American studies should be included. But 
this kind of prejudice against anybody who isn't maybe white and Christian, it really extends beyond the African-American community. Do you think in Wisconsin that prejudice still exists um, the way it once did? Is have things gotten better? Uh, Do you see progress? My hope is that it got better because we have a lot of people from that I know personally that went to Marquette University with me and um, other schools that um, work hard to make sure that they educate people. And my my dear friend, Mark, would go into a, a kindergarten class. He went to my son's kindergarten class. It was so cool. He came in in shorts and a T-shirt and tennis shoes. And he brought in, by the time he was done with his presentation explaining everything about a Native American regalia, um, he was completely dressed in a full regalia, and then he played music, and he let kids try on little pieces of his his, um, regalia, and then they all danced and sang. So we have people trying to work on educating our people, and and it is sad that we still come across this um, lack of knowledge or people not wanting to know about us, but... We've contributed so much in the forms of medicine, uh, tribal government, and more to the communities that are used now. So it is important to educate people about who we are and what we do. Absolutely. Um, Circling back to what we started with, which was talking about gerrymandering, I know that there are, there's, I believe there is more than one map that is being drawn up. Are any of the Native population having input into any of these maps? You know, I can't answer that, but I I hope they are. Um, I know it's an issue that's in the forefront of our people. I I can't answer that because I can't give you the name of the organizations that that are part of this. But we do have a voice. Yeah, I think I read in one of the Wisconsin publications that there are at least right now uh, seven legislative maps. And I'm assuming that means that there are at least seven different groups putting together maps. And I certainly hope that they are asking for input to all the people who would be affected by this. Um, What is, you talked about um, the Menominee tribe being in the Milwaukee area. Um, How far does it reach? How much land uh, what is the what is the area size? The area size of the Menominee Reservation. Mm-hmm. Um, first, let me say that Milwaukee has the largest concentration um, of tribes in the state. So, um, I can tell you that the tribe, our reservation, the size of it is um i'm trying to look it up i'm sorry that's okay that's okay i mean i just just, was wondering if um you know if it's geographically significant then it would seem to me that you should have a seat at one of these tables yeah well our our reservation i'm sorry i had this memorized i I get nervous and i shouldn't because you're so nice (laughs) thank you you really are i appreciate that um, our reservation is 235,524 acres, 235,524 wow. acres, or 357.96 square miles. And we're heavily forested. 
over 223,000 acres of land are heavily forested, and that's what we're known for. So we're 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 big, we're big, but we also have a lot of um, Native Americans that live down in Milwaukee because at one point people were offered one-way tickets in an attempt to have natives assimilate into the non-native community. So they would come to, they'd give them a one-way ticket to Milwaukee and then they'd stay here and the population has grown. And it's just not, not just Menominee, all tribes have people that live in, in Milwaukee. And um, for example, the Oneida Nation has the Southeast Oneida Tribal Services Office, which services their native people here in Milwaukee. Ho-Chunk Nation also has a Milwaukee office where they service people here. And the same with uh, Madison. Ho-Chunk has also an office in Madison and La Crosse, I believe. Well, Anne, I'm glad you're keeping an eye on this situation in Wisconsin and uh, sharing with us. I'm sure that we are going to be talking about these new legislative maps in Wisconsin and which one gets adopted and what that looks like for the people of Wisconsin. And there's never, ever a need to be nervous, okay? We're all friends oh, here. <laughs> well, I want to say that's why I want, and thank you very much for having well, me on. It was a joy talking with you. You're very, very welcome. Nice to have you here. Anne Egan, Waka, a urban native vote organizer for Wisconsin Native Vote. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Monday. You thought I forgot now, didn't you? Um, And I am so pleased to uh, bring back our monthly media segment. We have former Chicago Trib and Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob, now with Courier Newsrooms, and former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Mark. How are you? Doing great. Um, Hey, Joe. Happy to be here. Well, I'm really glad you guys are here. I don't know if you heard the beginning of the show, but um, I tried to start Tuesday's show. I was uh, introducing uh, a Tuesday guest, and Paul got in my ear, and he was like, uh, it's, that's not the right guest. Uh, today's a different day. That's, oh, that's tomorrow. I think you're getting ahead of yourself. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, clearly, I had a good weekend. Um, and it's, that was not, I was not hungover. I don't want you to think that's what I mean when I say I had a really good weekend. I perhaps slept too much. Yeah, that's it. I slept too much. Anyway, um, we have a lot to talk about today. You know, whenever I have Mark and Jennifer on, we always exchange emails. Well, what about this? What about this? And, you know, I've got to tell you, (laughs) we don't even have to uh, communicate with one another like a week or two before this because so many other things will pop up will bubble up that we need to talk about that there's there's just no point in even pinning it down um before things get off the ground so um the latest i thing that i want to talk about a little bit is the media reporting on the robert her report on uh, president biden's handling of classified documents by all accounts, even by uh, lawyers who generally are brought on cable news shows just to give um, a legal perspective, uh, people are horrified 
by this guy, Robert Herr, and how he went. He was he was James Comey-esque in his use, his his wild use of adjectives that had no business in this kind of a report. And I everywhere I turned, uh, whether it was on social media, whether it was on CNN, whether it was on MSNBC, I mean, people were outraged and angry and condemning, condemning this. I know, Jennifer, you shared with me uh, something I, I think believe Weissman is MSNBC. Is he not? Mm-hmm. And he wrote, you know, a, an article about, listen, you want to know what's in it? It's not what you've heard. And partly is what partly this is due to what Robert Herr wrote, but partly it is due to the way this was reported. Jennifer, why don't you start? Well, listen, it's been eight days and I am still absolutely horrified um, at the way the media has covered what Mr. Herr did. And what Mr. Herr did was above all, I think, political. He did clear the president of all wrongdoing, but my guess is most people don't know that. Um, Now, part of that's Mr. Herr, right? Because I think it's pretty obvious from what all the experts say, like Andrew Weissman, who you mentioned, the former federal prosecutor who um, worked with Robert Mueller, um, that, that this report is way outside the norm for these kinds of things, that the editorializing, if you will, um, and the suddenly he's a doctor uh, making medical pronouncements throughout the report is really, really outside um, what normally happens here. But then that report was gobbled up by the media and spit out so fast and furiously without, I think, really any of them reading it all the way through. Because the other thing about the report is that it's filled with contradictions. Right. He willfully released this information. He did not willfully release this information. Mm-hmm. And, and, but that, and my guess is her is political. He's a political lawyer guy. Um, he knew that. This is not an accident that this report focused on these things the way that it did. It is not. Um, this is not some middle-of-the-road prosecutor just doing his job, you know, nose to the grindstone, doing his job. This is a guy with a political background, and he probably thinks a political future, right, if Donald Trump's elected, who intentionally, I think, muddied the waters at best, misled America at worst, and the media helped him do it. I've never seen anything like that news conference of the screaming hysterical reporters. I, mm-hmm. I've been in a lot of news conferences in my career, and I've never seen people behave that way. I've never seen it on television before. And that was really just the start of it. I mean, or, or you know, it started with the news alerts that came out before that, and then this news conference, and since then, and the uh, the overabundance of coverage about um, the president, and suddenly everyone is an expert. We all know what senility looks like. No, we don't. We all understand memory issues. No, we don't. 
But we're all writing them. A lot of people are writing about them as if they do. There was one small piece in the New York Times that said, okay, this is what we need to know about memory. Um, but in the grand scheme of the New York Times, they're the biggest offenders, I think, in, in puffing up the wrong story and getting the story um, wrong. Um, meanwhile, as I know Mark's going to want to talk about, and I do too, the former president of the United States is talking about concentration camps, internment camps, I mean, and rounding, creating a red state army to go into blue states to round up people, and, oh, by the way, giving away the store to Russia when it comes to NATO countries. And the difference in the tone, the amount, and the type of coverage and where it dominated Sunday shows from front pages is so mind-boggling, I come back to my original point, which is I'm really distressed. Mark, you want to weigh in here? I just think that the Republicans have been really deft at weaponizing the special counsel statute. And, you know, and you see not just what happened last week, but what happened in the Mueller report. You know, and that, so you have a special counsel who comes to the, you know, who does uh, his investigation, and then Bill Barr comes out and he won't let the report get out, but he instead he lies about what's in the report. Mm-hmm. You know, and says that Trump was cleared. So they totally gamed the report in that case to to help Trump. And you know, people remember the first thing they hear. That's the, that's, right. that's the tough thing about this. And so, so Barr very effectively lied about what was in the Mueller report and said that Trump had been cleared when he hadn't. And and here, the, almost the opposite happened. You know, the, uh, Merrick Garland, you know, failed to edit and or just to say, wait a second, this isn't appropriate for this. Which you he know, had every ability Mark, to you do. just touched on something that I have questions about, and I don't know if you have any insight into this because I can't believe that this report was released without first being given to the boss. You know, I can't believe that that Robert Herr just called up all of his reporter friends and said, hey, it's out. I'm sending you all a copy. And if Merrick Garland read this, Merrick Garland didn't look at this guy and say, this is not what I expect from a lawyer of your caliber. Well, there's just a couple of things to break down in this. Number one, this whole kind of willfully stuff. Which it, it, Jen is completely right that it's contradicted in the report itself, but it provides this great little headline and this great little quote that they can use. And you know, he, I, her was clearly writing headlines for for the news media. I mean, that's what he was doing, and and, and so it came out that way. And then you have this kind of trickery where you know, do you remember the day your your son died? You know, well. You know, people, you're under oath, so if you don't want to answer wrong, so if, you, if you're not sure, you say, I don't know. And, you know, a, a lot of people don't memorize the dates when their loved ones died. It doesn't mean they don't care about it. And some people just are not date-oriented. Uh, you know, I'm not, you know. And uh, as far as personal stuff, I don't remember, you know, like I try to remember my wife's anniversary just for safety's sake, and that's about <laughs> it. You know, I mean, it's it's I, so so that's just it's just so unfair and it was so beyond the bounds of what his job was. And it, it, it's just it's it's awful. And then this media just, you know, swallowed it up. And it, it's uh, and it's again, it's the first thing you hear is what you're going to remember. And then we, exactly. you know, when, you, when you look at it, when you break it down, it doesn't really stand up. It doesn't. And, and you know, again, it, we're reality based on this show. I know we are. And, you know, 
Joe Biden's an old guy. He's, you know, he's 80. So sometimes he may, or he's 81, I don't know, what, what, he's in his 80s. And, and so he may forget stuff. You know, of course, if you're 50, you may forget stuff, too. Mm-hmm. But he's not like, he's not like, you know, he's not going to win Jeopardy. He's not, he's, he's not like, you know, Mr. Quick, you know, genius guy. He's, what he is is a very experienced guy who knows the whole international stage, knows how things work in Congress, knows a lot of very smart people, and picks good people. This is the thing that, that it just drives me crazy that nobody pays attention to, is that, is that, all right, so Biden's not running the whole government by himself. Instead, he's picking very able people to do it for him, unlike the previous president, who and who, who has denounced virtually his entire cabinet because they've denounced him. So, I mean, it, it, it's the, the ability to hire good people is a big part of administration. Yeah. And, and Biden's been really good at it, with the possible exception, I would say, of Merrick Garland, who is a big disappointment. Huge disappointment. Um, just almost difficult to put into words uh, what kind of a disappointment. And by the way, for those of you who don't um, aren't quite sure what we're referring to, the headline for this report by Robert Herr was that um, the president uh, isn't going to be prosecuted, but he did willfully retain materials. That was on page two. On page 215, buried into the main body of the report, it says very clearly that there is no evidence that President Biden willfully retained materials. So which is it, Mr. Herr? The the comment on page two that you knew everybody would see or the truth of the matter, which is buried on page 215? That's part of why. Go ahead. I'm going to say that's not the only place that that, that it says that. I have the I want to suggest to your listeners to go to justsecurity.org, and there you'll find a really thorough analysis of the HER report by Andrew Weissman, the prosecutor we were just talking about, and uh, uh, I think New York University law professor Ryan Goodman, and they have a list of multiple places in the document where it says, for example, on page 170, we do not know whether Mr. Biden willfully retained. On page 177, we cannot prove that Mr. Biden retained these classified documents willfully. On 326, this evidence does not suggest that Mr. Biden retained the classified documents inside them willfully. I mean, it goes on and on and on like that. And yesterday, Sunday morning on on both Meet the Press and This Week, they both led their shows with the president willfully withheld evidence. And and I will get at what what they should have led their shows with, which is the NATO stuff. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. Because it's not like there was no other news to talk about. Do you think this was another one of those instances where people are so eager to be first. I mean, clearly, if you sat down and you read the whole document, you would see those contradictions. But it just came out. Everybody's reporting on it. Look, let's just go with the with the headline here, you know, because I'm sure whatever he says in the beginning is just going to be backed up by what he reports on later, when indeed that was not the case. Was this another Another example of let's be first, let's be first, even if we're not right. 
I think that's entirely possible, but I would also argue that I bet, because the first time they mention the president's memory is on page five of the executive summary. So you, I think they were pointed in that direction. I, Hmm. I know that sometimes before these reports come out, reporters are briefed off the record. And so I think this was intentional. I, I think being fast and first, first and fast was also part of the problem. But everybody was on that topic so quickly that that just doesn't happen. It's also, I mean, let's be honest. I think we live in a media world where, hmm, I'm going to write about NATO or a old president with memory problems. You know, which one of those stories is going to get things moving here and clicks and all of that? I mean, one story is, and I put this in air quotes, sexier than the other one. And um, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people there. The idea of Joe, like Mark said, we know Joe's old. He's old. He's an old third man. Um, But this fed into a lot of storylines that have already been out there, and I'm sure more that have been percolating, right? So this was a much easier gra- something to grab onto. Mm-hmm. I argue they grabbed a little too hard, a little too aggressively, and made a lot of um, factual mistakes along the way. And I'm sure they're going to acknowledge those mistakes and... Um and explain to the audience that they moved a little too quickly and maybe didn't quite get it right the first time around. Don't you think that there will be that kind of honesty and correction coming from all the different sources that were so quick to report all this stuff? I have not seen yeah, well, the press or this week acknowledge that they made factual errors on their broadcast yesterday. And it's you know, more than 24 hours after those shows ran. And they know, because they were called out by some really serious people about those mistakes. No. Mm-mm. No. They're, they're, so far, I haven't seen a single correction. Do you think that, you know, like if you're Kristen, Kristen Welker, and you, as sadly she often does, uh don't follow up, don't push back, let somebody tell lies. What is the kind of feedback that matters to you? Is it only that you get off the air and your bosses look at you and you go, and go, man, Ms. Welker, you're the best. You're A number one. We love you. Everything's terrific. Or then you read all these other uh, respected reporters on social media that say, basically, she was, she was steamrolled. What, what gets to you? What what makes you change your behavior for next time? I think there's very little self-reflection in Washington media, uh, almost none. And that's part of the problem. It's, it's, it's kind of why, you know, why I and others are, you know, constantly complaining about it, hoping that it kind of gets through to some people because they, cause they just don't seem to. The thing that drives me nuts is here, or just to put it in a nutshell, here we are in the biggest political crisis, one of the biggest political crises of this nation's history. Maybe the most, this may be the most important election since the Civil War, because because you have a would-be dictator running for president who may get elected. So this, I mean, it couldn't be more important. And it's, this is unprecedented. You've got a guy running for president who's charged with 91 felonies, yet... 
the news media is trying to do things exactly the same way they did four years ago and eight years ago and 12 years ago and 16 years old ago and 20 years ago because it's comfortable. They know how to do it. It's horse race. They can talk about the polls. Mm-hmm. It's the same old crap. They can talk about bellwether states and they can talk about the hustings in the New, New Hampshire and they can fall back on all these old tropes instead of saying, holy crap, this is an entirely new situation in this country that really deserves our attention and we need to take new approaches to. And instead, they're trying to take the same old approaches to a completely new situation. Is that because of a failure of leadership? Because, yes. you know, you and, you and Jennifer and I, we've all worked in newsrooms and there's a, there's a structure. And even though your name and face might be what is out there, um, you answer to the people who pay your salary and, you know, you, you listen to what they have to say. And if they say cover this the same way you've always covered it, that the, the impetus is to cover it the same way you've always covered it. Because, you know, regardless of what you think, do you really want to stick your neck out and, you know, be the one taken to task? So is it a failure of leadership? Huh. Hmm. Hmm. I well, think you have a great answer. Me. I do. I do because, because <laughs> yeah. this is a failure. I mean, of it's a complete failure, top to bottom, right? Yes, but it, but here's the thing. I and, and I've, I may write this someday in my newsletter. Yeah, Kristen Welker is not good at what she's doing. But it's really not her fault, mostly. Mostly it's the fault of her bosses, people who are putting her in the situations. People are saying, please put Elise Stefanik on to lie over and over and over again for 10 minutes. And and please put Elise Stefanik on in a way that you can't fact check her or that she has three separate lies in one sentence so that you can't, you know, you can't parse everything. And so that she ends up getting her lying message across, she ends up winning that exchange, and you can't get to the truth. And that's, that's not entirely Kristen Welker's fault. That's, uh, that's her manager's fault, largely. And I can tell you, she's new to the job. She is trying to prove herself. This is Maybe she would do things differently if she'd been in the chair for even five years and felt like she owned it and it was her show. Um, I mean, I've seen people, good people, who deep down inside know better, just capitulate because, you know, they don't have the confidence. And when you've got a bunch of people telling you to do X, you know, and your gut says you should do Y, you have to have a lot of confidence to do Y in the face of that pressure to do X. And I think part of the problem is being new to the job, and maybe the show doesn't feel like it's her own yet. You know what? I think that's part of it. But I watch these interviews pretty regularly, and we are in a crazy time where, for example, Elise Stefanik, everything she said was a lot. And so... I think when you have that fire hose of that coming at you, I'm not sure how anybody fact checks every single sentence because really that's how much she lies. <laughs> it's just like Trump. Every single thing is wrong. Do you, how do you even begin to 
tackle that. So then do you make the decision that you're going to go just after the whoppers? I'd argue they're all whoppers, but do you know what I mean? It's just if you're (laughs) interviewing somebody who is doing nothing but lying, maybe the question really is, why are they on in the first place? Or why are they on live? Why are they on live also? Because if if they weren't on live, you could tape them and you could say, stop, we're going to stop the tape. Now, here's where she said this. It's not true. Here's where she said this. It's not true. And she also said this, and this is also not true. Let's resume the interview. And then you could have her say another few sentences. Then you could stop the tape and say, well, here's where she lied about this. Here's where she lied about this. If you're going to put her on in the first place. But you don't necessarily have to. I mean, I think you've got to put on a presidential candidate pretty much. I think that you have an obligation to give them some air time. But you have to, like, you have to fact check them. But, Mark, that's what they did when she interviewed Trump a few months ago. Right. They recorded it, and then they stopped it. And then fact-checkers who fact-checked their fact-checks said, well, what about this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one, right? Right. They let her take – they let Trump – on that show, even though it was taped and they did – supposedly did fact-checks, uh, and by the way, they did fact checks at the end of the show, largely, which is, is, is you know, 20 yeah, minutes. You have after to do it after the something. statement. Yeah. Anyway, but they but they let him either three or four times. You have to go back and look. But uh, they let Trump say that there was such a thing as post-birth abortion like three or four times. And four times I counted it. And she stopped him twice. He said, no, it's not. That's not it. No, that's not it. But then he said it two more times. And this is on tape. They don't have to air this. But they did. So he won the the exchange four to two. That was a score. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you guys. I'm sure you've seen on social media that there is such outrage with the way the New York Times has been reporting, especially the her report and going after Biden's age and seemingly giving Donald Trump a pass. There is actually um, a move um, to have everybody um cancel their New York Times subscription this week. A lot of people, according to social media, already have. But um, the thinking was if they could if they could center on one day, then it would send a real message. And I think, uh, Jennifer, what's the day? Is it the 14th? Of what? Uh, This week, February 14th. That is the day that everybody's calling for the mass cancellations. Oh, I have no idea. Oh. I have no idea. But you know what? Great. Maybe they'll notice. They won't. They have 10 million subscribers. <laughs> they don't care if 50 of you, you know, drop them. They'll get 50 more the next day who wanted the, the cooking app. Right. Or the games. Yeah. I mean, you know, they don't know. I mean, listen, I get it. I understand that people are angry and disappointed. Um, I, I think that um, that is not the way, I, I mean, unless it was, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, they have 10 million subscribers. That's, you'd have to make a real dent in that for anybody to go, hmm. Well, even if it doesn't affect the bottom line, that certainly would seem to be a black eye for the newspaper that considers itself the best newspaper in the world. Yeah, I don't think they care. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. If they cared, then why would their coverage look the way it does? 
I'm just, uh, you know, I. <laughs> They they're living in a in in different air than the rest of us, and they their their metrics about what they think is important and how they should be doing their jobs and their role in society is not what we think it should be. They made that really clear after, but her email that hasn't changed. I mean, so you know, God love you if you want to cancel your subscription. Um, it'll save you whatever, and that's great. Um, they don't care. Just wait and see what nonsense Pamela Paul writes tomorrow. I am telling you, they don't care. (sighs) Okay, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the people that I follow is Emily Reese Nunn. I also subscribe to her newsletter, The Department of Salad. She's really a great writer. And um, she's just posting on threads that she's been a lifelong subscriber to the New York Times. Um, But... Uh, As she said, the country is in trouble. I care much more about that um, rather than she's afraid that she's going to make some of her friends mad by canceling over their papers coverage of Trump and Biden. Uh, She said a a paper is not a parent and defending it blindly or dismissing public outcry is abdicating the main duties of a reporter, which is to uncover. On that note, uh, we are going to take a break. For news, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the coverage uh, that did or did not happen to an adequate degree about Donald Trump's announcement that um, that he would abandon NATO. That's another one of the uh, platforms that he is promoting. We're going to be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty. It is our monthly media segment. I am joined by former Channel 9 News Director Jennifer Schulze, former Trib and Sun-Times editor Mark Jacob, currently working with Courier Newsrooms. And we are going to be talking about the coverage, or lack thereof, of um, another announcement by Donald Trump of what he wants to do if and or when he regains the presidency. And that is he wants to not only not support Ukraine, but completely walk away from NATO. And um, I'm so glad that this was like a major story. It was on everybody's front page. There were four or five articles every day making sure people knew about this. Oh, wait, wait. Mm, That's not that's not what happened. (laughs) (laughs) No, No, not even a little bit. And, uh, you know, and when I, I first saw it on Twitter uh, over the weekend, I, I started monitoring the New York Times and Washington Post to see how, how long it would take them to to arrive at a story on the subject. Because and to me, it was shocking because, I mean, he, what he's saying is, number one, he's totally wrong about the whole thing. That It's it, it's a, a, a goal for them to commit 2 percent of their uh, their GDP to uh, to defense. But uh, that doesn't mean that you know that, that that doesn't mean they owe anyone any money. It's not that they're that they need that they need to pay the U.S. back. And he was acting like that. But anyway, so so he says that you know that he that he would encourage. And he uses the word encourage, encourage Russia to to attack his our NATO allies if they didn't pay up. I mean that's shocking. I mean that's just it's traitorous, really. And and so I, I waited to see how long because I could you know obviously see that they're the tops of their website front you know homepages were all over you know Biden is old, Biden is old, you know. And 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 they were really pokey. They were really pokey. The New York Times, 
you know, threw a story together and, you know, put it under the Bidenist old stories and left it under the Bidenist old stories. Washington Post was even worse at first. They had the, that fact, you know, the thing about uh, Trump saying that about the NATO as the 23rd paragraph in their campaign story, their story about Haley and Trump in the campaign. The 23rd paragraph. I mean, that, that is, how, how is that for not understanding news when it smacks you in the face? I mean, it's, and, and it's all because, to me, it's the, part of the problem is it's a weekend mentality. I've been in the news business. I know that, that a lot of the big shots who call the shots and decide things are, you know, they're going to the opera or something on the weekend. They don't want to be bothered. And so, so the, the second string, third string, the weekend crew has to make the decisions, and they're afraid to, you know, upset the apple cart and say, hey, this should go to the lead unless it's really important. So, so a lot of things get underplayed. And uh, so I'm not saying it's like some nefarious conspiracy, but what it is is bad journalism. I I couldn't agree more. I was just um, looking over uh, Jay Rosen, who you guys know is a uh, a media uh, critic. Um, was uh, he posted something about an organization called Spotlight Pennsylvania? It's a nonprofit investigative journalism consortium. And um, they recently put out a statement that uh, defined how they were going to do their political coverage. And it said, we will not publish horse race coverage, stories that focus on campaign stops, the latest attacks, who's winning or losing in the polls. Other news outlets provide that coverage. We don't see a need to duplicate it, Um, that they were going to try to do um, a more contextual reporting. And, you know, that's all well and good. But what we saw with the NATO, it it isn't even, oh, that's a story that requires more context. It was just that's a story that requires a higher placement, um, a bigger headline. That's one of those five alarm fire stories. Um, I don't um, I don't see. Is it is it just that with Donald Trump, people are just worn out? They're worn out by the anger and the outrageousness that they have Trump, uh, a sort of Trump fatigue where, you know, they sort of this is this where, you know, I'm going to abandon NATO and um, and I'm not going to come to the aid of any country um, that hasn't, you know, paid up their dues. Is it just they're just tired that it just doesn't seem to make an impression because, you know, damn well. If later this afternoon Joe Biden came out and said this, oh my God, it would be the it would be top story for the next week. I think that you're definitely right, Joan, that there is some weariness. Um, we've talked on this show before; it could be boredom. I also just think that the oddity that is Donald Trump is something that almost all news media has not in the eight plus years figured out how to cover. And I don't understand why they, you know, let's take him at his word. Now, granted, he lies all the time, but the fact that he lies all the time and the crazy stuff that he says, it's news every time he says it, you know, on Friday, he spoke to the NRA in Pennsylvania at their national something, something, And that's when he said the thing about creating a red state army. Now, I'm sorry, that also 
is a really big, big story. And if you look at the coverage of that, it's layered. It, first of all, it's barely covered by the national media. I did a cursory look at how Pennsylvania media covered it, and um, most of the coverage centered on his saying, which is also crazy, that he basically wanted every person in America to have a gun when they were walking down the street. So that got some coverage, but the attacks uh, or his threats for internment camps and a he the quote is something I don't have it in front of me, but it was create a red state army to go into blue states and round up hundreds of thousands of immigrants and put them in internment camps. Why are we talking about that? And that was Friday. And Saturday, he did the whole NATO thing. Mark's right about the weekend, but I think in people being a little slower, maybe, and fewer people working, but I think this happens every single day. So why aren't they staffing these speeches and reporting them properly? It's at the, the standard's different for Trump. Trump, Trump you know, it's, it's just he's expected to be crazy. So, well, that's not news when he's crazy. But the guy's running for president. We ought to be taking it seriously. But, mm-hmm. but they clearly have a higher bar for what they consider news based on what he does. And let's, let's yeah. just uh, take it apart with what, what uh, Trump and his, you know, his horrible henchman, uh, Stephen Miller, have planned for us on immigration if he gets elected. They're talking about getting red state governors to to turn over, to call out all the National Guard and turn them over to the federal government as a, a force to round up suspected illegal immigrants. You know, and can you imagine how that would go and, and whether, oh, well, you're, you're, your skin might not be as white as somebody, so you get picked up. You know, you, you, this, the idea, the abuses in something like that would be horrendous. But even worse than that, they're talking about using this red state army and sending them into blue states that don't want to participate in it. So, it was, so what we're going to have Indiana invade Illinois? I mean, it's it's madness. It's crazy. Yet, yet this is what they have planned. This is what they are talking about. And the news media is well, oh, well, you know, the Biden's old. It's it's it, it it just it make it just makes me crazy that they can't see this giant story that should be smacking them in the face. They just think it's a heavy wind or something. But when <laughs> it, 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 I mean, I just don't understand why. The news media today, which is should be confronting the biggest story of their careers, is instead doing the same old crap with horse race politics and you know and, and stupid like chasing after dumb gaffes. And let me tell you about gaffes. And I wrote a my newsletter, my Stop the Press's newsletter, is about that today. And what the thing about gaffes is. Everyone makes them, you know, dumb, you know, Mike Johnson got, got some piece was talked about Iran when he met Israel. Uh, Nikki Haley said September 10th when she met September 11th, just the other day. So everyone makes them. Do old people like Trump and Biden make them more? Maybe so. But my point in that newsletter was, you know, that, that if we should be much less concerned about people making mistakes on accidentally on minor stuff than people doing stuff on purpose on major stuff. And that's what, and, and, and there seems to be no prioritization about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this Preet Bahara, the former prosecutor who was um, uh, fired by Donald Trump after being told he could keep his job. Anyway, um, he was on ABC 
And he was on ABC to talk about the her report, which, by the way, he said the language in it was gratuitous and superfluous. But he said, here's a quote. It's a weird landscape we're in where Donald Trump gets credibly charged in four charging documents, four indictments around the country. And that's a political boon for him. And Joe Biden, on the other hand, this week gets exonerated in a document. And it's a political nightmare for him. Something is upside down. Well, he's correct. Yeah. Yeah, he's correct. I mean, it is. It is. It's upside down. It's inside out. It's backwards. It's forwards. Up is down. Uh, uh, It is the most. Um. It. I. uh, (laughs) Mm I want to butt in here and say something. You know, we're like we're, we're like you know. Debbie Downers here talking to all of the three of yes, us talking about how, how horrible things are and how the news media is you know, messing up, and they are messing up. But Biden has managed a soft landing on a very precarious economy. The jobless rate is three percentage points lower than when Trump left it. So, so people are working. The auto workers in this country got a new deal with Biden's help. Things are not too terrible, and what we need to do instead of always just saying, oh, horrible things are happening, is we need to do something about it, which means if you're in Illinois and you really want to make sure that Trump doesn't become president, you might want to, like, volunteer with the Wisconsin Democrats. You might want to go up there and knock on doors for them, because that might make a difference. And Wisconsin is a state that the Democrats have to win next year. I did, you know, last time around, that's exactly what I did. I went up for the, for the you know, now that I'm not in the media anymore, I can do that. And, uh, you know, I want to knock on doors for the Supreme Court candidate up there who's going to probably make a big difference in both abortion rights and in uh, getting rid of the horrible gerrymandering they have where the Republicans are stealing political power from from Democrats, especially from minorities. So uh, so we can do things. And, and uh, I mean, it's really important for us to complain on this show because we people need because all three of us know the news media. and We know the failures that we're seeing in front of us. But, you know, but but uh, the listeners, I just hope they, that they know that they can take action, that it's not it's not hopeless. In fact, there's plenty of hope if people take the right actions. I think that's really good advice and a good reminder for everybody that we, I think, get, I find myself personally, you get, I get into a trap of the, oh, crap, look at that. But you can be proactive about a lot of these things. And you've talked about this, Mark. Um, You know, Biden's done a lot of really great stuff. Let's talk about that. Let's encourage coverage of that. Get involved with political campaigns. It's really easy to do. There's a million groups out there, and you can do it from your home. You can drive up to Wisconsin. You can go over to Michigan. Michigan is also going to be a critical state. We are ideally situated to be in close proximity to some places that really could use um, boots on the ground for people in Illinois. And, um, but if you can't do that, you know, go to swingleft.org and see if you can help them. There's a lot of organizations like that. Um, And, and we need to be um, the messengers of the positive stuff. I mean, if you're into the stock market, the stock market, hit a record last Friday. It has never hit in the history of the stock market. Of course, that story doesn't get told, um, but it impacts 
an awful lot of people. Um, and Mark's right about the unemployment rate. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff, good news to talk about. And we can't afford to, to let the crazy journalism out there drag <laughs> us down into the street where we get run over. <laughs> well, my fear, though... You know, I do. I agree. And I'm always talking on this radio show about how people can do things. And, you know, if you get the email every day from Indivisible Chicago, there's always in that email at least two actions you can take, many of them from the comfort of your own pouch. You know, this bill is coming up, you know, fill out a witness slip. Here's the link. Um, There's a lot that you can do. And. You know, we've got to get involved with this upcoming election. What what bothers me is, I guess, having come from this world of journalism, I'm so disappointed because I think that the people who do journalism, they really want to make the world a better place. And they seem to be falling, falling short and it does have an influence. I mean, you see 50 headlines that tell you Biden's too old and you don't see any comparable headlines uh, telling you that the other guy is even worse Then it soaks into your pores. Even if you are not a regular reader of The New York Times, that whole message, it soaks in. And I'm really worried that that it will have an effect on this election. I'm really worried. We stand at a precipice where it isn't just two different people who want the country to succeed but have different visions for what that looks like. This is a guy who wants to dismantle the very the very platform, the, the very infrastructure of how we have always functioned as a country. And I'm really worried that the that the news media, who I know and love, are not rising to the occasion, that they are not calling it out. They are not helping turn back this tide of dictatorship. That's why I think, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer either, but that's why I am so concerned about all of this. Right. And, and I think that what they're not doing is, Putting, inserting in these context paragraphs, and you know, if you read news stories, sometimes there's a just a paragraph that's pretty much just a background paragraph explaining the situation in the story that's being written about, the overall situation or the recent history of that issue. And they they need to have one that's all about Trump wants to be a dictator because he does because he said it because he's talked specifically about sending troops into American cities without asking, without an invitation from people who are running those cities. He's, you know, he's talked about these detention camps. He's, he's talked about so many different, he's talked about using the Department of Justice as, you know, as an instrument of retribution and to punish his enemies. He's said specifically that he's plans yes. to use the Department of Justice to go after his enemies. He said that. And so, so what, why is that not a paragraph in every story about Trump's campaign for the presidency? It's totally relevant. And again, the only thing that I can come up with, I don't think the New York Times wants us to fall victim to a dictatorship. I think it's a combination of fatigue and also, too, um, when you look at who reads the New York Times and who subscribes, uh, that tends to be... 
um, a more conservative human being than, say, somebody who subscribes to the Washington Post. So maybe they're playing to the crowd a little bit. They're thinking about their own self-interest as opposed to the self-interest of the country. I don't know. Jennifer, thoughts? Yeah, I don't I, I don't agree with you on that. Um, I, I think we don't know anymore who subscribe. And I see, I don't think subscriber is the right way to think about it. Um, you know, because, because what the New York times or any big news organization does has such an, a wider impact. Um, it's sort of, you know, it, it's a low information voter versus high information voter kind of thing. And I, I think, I mean, most people don't watch the news and read the news every day like we do. They just don't. They got stuff to do. Um, and that doesn't mean they're bad people or stupid people or whatever. It just means they got stuff to do. And they, people just don't, are not as into the weeds as we are, for sure. But even more than that, I mean, people just, you know, so they catch snatches of things. And and so who subscribes or who the target audience is for the Washington Post? I think it's more about who works there or works at the New York Times. Because, um, you know, the New York Times is so – they've got so many different products right now that they've got a, a probably a really interesting demographic that is not – it's not any one thing or any one place. I mean, the people probably who are like cook, buy it for the cooking are not – reading P- Peter Baker and getting mad, you know, so I just, but I think that, that they, they do set an agenda. They kind of, they do more than signal to other people in the business, kind of what the story is. And that is more concerning. But as we've talked about on the show, I'm actually more concerned sometimes about the Associated Press and the Associated Press is the newsroom for most news organizations in the whole country. Um, you know, they subscribe to the Associated Press news feed. They put the Associated Press in there. They use it to write their news copy, or they put the articles in there on their website. And, you know, when those guys get it wrong, as they have, you know, they were – that is really concerning because that has a really large national impact. But um, – you know, so many people are tuned out of news. I, people are not reading and watching this stuff. You know, you know if you're under Jennifer, 30, you, you're on TikTok. You, me, and Mark <laughs> were at that speech, that talk that Tara McGowan gave about uh, the Courier newsrooms. And one thing she said, I, I, can't get, I can't get it out of my head, where, like, the Washington Post and the New York Times, it's the already informed talking to the already informed and I think she's right um, and especially as you know I've been talking to more and more people if the low information voter that's now like a catchphrase you know the people who just don't want to pay any attention to politics they figure like a week or two before they vote they'll you know maybe learn a little bit so that they can figure out how to vote but the rest of the time it's all just it's all just too much um, so is, is this focus on mainstream media maybe misplaced because it's the informed talking to the informed? Well, here's, here's what I think about that. I think that 
that the right wing has really learned how repetition works. They, and they, they keep on saying the same things over and over again. And people just have, it's just human nature to think that if you hear something 20 times, it must be true. You know, well, it must be true or they wouldn't say it. You know, and there, there is that. And so I think that the, that the left or the liberals or the moderate, you know, left of center people often get bored with the message and move on to something else and don't realize that most people are not paying attention to every last thing that gets reported and that they do need it to be repeated. That's why I'm talking about having that summary graph in every story, that summary paragraph that says, you know, that by the way, Trump wants to be a dictator because most people don't know. I mean, do you think that most people who are going to vote in the coming election know that Trump in December 2022 said that he wanted termination of the Constitution. That was his quote, termination. That was his word. He wanted termination of the Constitution. And it wasn't, there's no debate about him saying it. He put it on Truth Social. Do you think most people who are going to vote know that? I bet not. Which is yeah. why I keep on repeating it. That's why I keep on, I keep on saying it over and over again, because... Because because things get into, you know, things. it's like, you know, Biden is old, Biden is, you know, it's like it's become this fact among, you know, people who watch Fox News because they hear it so much. And and there are some facts that we need to spread. The, 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 the fact that the economy is strong and is it's actually miraculously strong, considering that you, we're, we're coming out of a out of a pandemic in which money had to be pumped into the system because so many people were were uh, dislocated from their jobs, lost their jobs. I mean, the, the unemployment rates just skyrocketed for a short period of time. People needed the money, and, and money was thrown in the system. And that's naturally going to cause inflation, and we had some inflation. And that's being brought under control now. And nobody, every, almost everyone was predicting, predicting a recession last year. Didn't happen. And so, think so. So, this idea that we need to keep on telling people this that the, that be, just because Fox News says the economy's bad doesn't mean the economy's bad. Yeah. Um, there. Um, speaking of Fox News, um, beyond just how things should be covered, you know, there's some real misinformation and disinformation. Ray and I know a young woman who's um, who who told us that her parents have said that they're going to be voting for Trump in this next election because he will really do great things with the economy. Uh, and, and, and Joe Biden, if, if Joe Biden gets reelected, the economy is just going to tank. And Donald Trump is the only one they can count on for a good economy. And all I could think of was Fox talking points, Fox talking points, that they have completely absorbed because you know, I know, Jennifer knows that is not the truth of the matter. Uh, Donald Trump had a, had a, was given a great economy and yes, there was COVID, but it just completely fell apart and he didn't do anything to put it back together. And Joe Biden has put the economy back together. But if you hear the story on Fox, forget about whether or not you're reporting is doing good things for democracy, their reporting isn't even truthful. Well, no, it's not. And it's had a huge impact on lots of things, including the fact that that whether people actually believe it or not, or just because they are Republican and support Trump, they will tell pollsters that the economy is terrible. And then there will be news stories about, how the the country doesn't 
see the positive economy doesn't believe it and without explaining that the polling results are being skewered skewed by people who are either will not say tell a pollster the truth and or are are not being told the truth for the you know year on for years now and so do actually think that even though i'm sure their personal circumstances are probably not reflective of that but do you know what i mean so there's like there's like a earth two out there and and this isn't the only issue the economy it's true about crime crime is actually way down but polling people believe it's up but especially republicans think it's up and getting worse and now i just saw polling that um, that people think that Joe Biden is to blame for the border deal not getting done. Well, why do you think the polling shows that? Mm-hmm. At least part of that is coming from um, people who are watching Fox and Fox is telling them that. And I think we have to think very seriously. I mean, we, we already saw that polling did not work so well um, in 2022. I think it's going to be very misleading. But And we've talked on the show about how the news leans into poll results as if it's, you know, from on high. And polling is is getting, is crazy and is not necessarily reflective of reality and is certainly influenced by politics and disinformation. Totally. I think we should, everyone should ignore the horse race polls. Just ignore them. There's, there's yeah. no reason that they need to pay attention to them. They're not, you know, who knows? They're not even, they don't agree with each other. They're not, you know, we don't know what they're based on. It's harder to poll than ever before. And it really shouldn't affect our behavior. I mean, we should, we should be considering the fact that our country is in a serious danger of, of flushing away, you know, 247 years of democracy. So, so um, you know, and so, so let's get serious about it, and let's not worry about whether the polls show somebody's up two points or down two points. Yeah, I I agree, guys. <clears throat> as always, it is an interesting discussion, and um, I'm sure next time we meet, we're going to have just such incredible positive things to say about all the wonderful ways the media is really rising to the occasion. <laughs> Go Hope <media>. springs eternal. <laughs> Thank you both for being here today. Jennifer Schulze, former Channel 9 News Director. Um, Mark Jacob, former Sun-Times and Trib Editor, currently with Courier Newsrooms. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with uh, Trib Environmental Reporter Michael Hawthorne after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We do have some breaking news that I want to share with you this afternoon. As expected, today was the last day for him to do it, and he has done it. Donald Trump, through his attorneys, has asked the Supreme Court to push back and keep the January 6th trial on hold. Um, He wants a decision from them about his immunity, but he's also asking for more than that. Um, He says that a trial would radically disrupt his reelection bid. This is part of Trump's whole argument about how presidents are shielded from prosecution, 
Um, I'm sure you've heard what he has said before, that um, if presidents didn't have immunity, nobody would ever do anything or make any kinds of decisions. <laughs> and uh, I guess if presidents really want to be able to break the law, that's true. But um, let's see, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan. Did anybody bring criminal charges, federal criminal charges? Did the DOJ go after any of them after they left office? I can't. Gee, if they did, I sure don't remember it. Because you know why I don't remember it? Because it didn't happen. It didn't happen. So what's going to happen now? Well, the Supreme Court, um, whether or not they announce whether or not they're going to hear this case, which, by the way, was um, decided by the D.C. Court of Appeals in a unanimous decision. And they were like, no, he doesn't have protection from prosecution. Here's why legally, morally and righteously that is the case. Um. Jack Smith knew that Donald Trump would end up taking this before the Supreme Court. That's why, like a month ago, he petitioned the Supreme Court to hear this immunity argument right here, right now. They declined to do that after Donald Trump's lawyers were like, oh, no, we think that the whole legal process should be respected. In other words, we think that the whole legal process should come to bear here because that is how we are going to stall and drag this out. Because the goal isn't to get an answer. The goal is to keep this January 6th trial from happening till after the election. It is a stalling move. It is a delaying tactic. So according to the Washington Post... Um, Donald Trump's lawyers have made this request. Now the federal prosecutors respond. The Washington Post is speculating that the chief justice of the United States, John Roberts, is going to ask those federal prosecutors for a very quick response from this. They want to hear what federal prosecutors say about this uh, request. Before they make their decision. Uh, the D.C. Circuit Court, by the way, issued a 57-page decision that is being described as forceful, a unanimous rebuke. Two of the judges were nominated by Biden. One of the judges was nominated by a Republican President George Bush. But they were very clear in what they said. We cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. They said that the trial, the January 6th trial in D.C., should continue on even if Trump doesn't have a decision on immunity, that the trial should move forward. 
It's going to be very interesting. This Supreme Court has not given Trump everything he's asked for. Are they going to support the move by states like Colorado to use the 14th Amendment to keep Trump off the ballot? It appears not. But that doesn't mean that they are going to roll over and capitulate each and every time Trump asks them for something. Uh, Let's go to the phone lines. Ted is calling in from Bensonville. Hey, Ted, go, go ahead. You're on the air. Thanks for calling. Yeah, Joe, embrace yourself for this one, buddy. Reading is for losers. Really? The, the, the reading, yeah, the reading of long-form words, written words, is obsolete. And I was an English major in college. I was a certified teacher of English and speech. I read all the great literature when I was in school. Have not read since. It's the reason there is electronic media, TV, radio. Uh-oh. We lost Ted. Um, I, I don't know uh, if he was um, just being uh, satiric uh, there or if he was quoting Donald Trump, who is famously. Some people think that he has very, very low reading skills that uh, he doesn't. It was famous when he was in the White House. Um, people learned very quickly that if they were going to brief him on something, that the best way to do it was with charts and graphs, visual, visual media, uh, because they couldn't expect him to read the reports that they gave him. Um, we are going to be taking a break right now, but don't tune away just because it's commercials, because in this break... You thought that the tickets to Al Franken were the only tickets we were going to give away today. You would be mistaken. We have two tickets starting today, all through this week. Every day on my show, we are going to be giving away two tickets to a wonderful production that's currently at North Light Theater. Um, it, it is right up your alley because it is interesting. It is fascinating. It is moving. A couple places, it's funny. And it is all about a family in Afghanistan and what their life is like now. Uh, so during in this commercial break, um, I will be reading off more information and we will be doing this context. So don't tune away. We but we will be right back after this break. Live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. As promised, we have Chicago Tribune environmental reporter Michael Hawthorne. I reached out to him when I saw the latest uh, EPA um, report, and uh, this one was on soot. Michael, how are you? Hey, I'm great, Joan. Good to be with you. Thanks. Soot. Is that the same thing as soil or dirt? And what is it that the EPA wants us to know about soot? Well, soot is actually, uh, it's a byproduct of, of combustion. So when we burn things like wood or oil or gas, uh, you know, it's not all combusted, that stuff. And so, um, you know, we get, we get soot as a result. And that, um, the, the, the kind of particles that most concerned scientists are so small that um, it, it's, you know, much uh, smaller in, dynam- in, in uh, diameter than even a human hair. And that means that these particles can get deep into our lungs. They can actually cross over into our bloodstream. 
And Ew. for a long time now, studies have uh, have uh, linked exposure to these particles, fine particles, with uh, respiratory ailments, cancer, heart disease, even brain damage. And so every five years under the Federal Clean Air Act from 1970, Bipartisan, overwhelming majority of Congress approved that in 1970, signed into law by Republican President Richard Nixon. Uh, Every five years, that law requires the EPA to look at the science, the state of the science, and decide whether or not uh, the air quality standards should be made more stringent, tightened, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, it, and it, but it's it's got a long history of kind of uh, political shenanigans involved during the Obama administration. The science uh, scientists, the independent scientific advisors of the EPA said, hey, you know, this standard needs to be tougher. And uh, President Obama's administration waited until after the 2012 election when President Obama was reelected to announce the tighter standard. Um, in, in the Trump administration, you might recall uh, there are a lot of very industry-friendly people in uh, government agencies. Um, the then uh, EPA administrator for the Trump administration, a man named Scott Pruitt, who had sued the agency uh, a bunch of times as the Republican Attorney General of the state of Oklahoma, fired all the independent scientific advisors and uh, stacked the, the the panel with uh, industry representatives. And they came back and said, you don't need to do anything. And and President Biden, as when he was campaigning in 2020, promised to take a look at this again. It's taken, you know, almost you know three years for them to get around to doing it. But they did last week. And as a result, the EPA says that there are about 59 counties around the country that are going to have to do more to reduce soot pollution. And that includes Chicago and Cook County, basically the entire Chicago metropolitan region. So what does that mean? Um, Because, you know, this sounds like the kind of thing where industry is going to say, oh, you know, it's going to this is going to cost us money. This is going to cost jobs. I, I, I imagine that's why. Uh, president's they're, already, yeah, they're already saying that. Yeah, and they, they've said that all. They, they say that every time. Um, but uh, a group called uh, Earth Justice recently put out an analysis that found that in a number of communities around the country, the amount of soot pollution or the levels of soot pollution in the air has declined. In the Chicago area, for example, declined by about fifteen percent in the last decade. And at the same time, unemployment has dropped and. Uh, gross domestic product has increased. So, you know, the, the, the facts aren't really spelled out or, you know, the, 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 uh, the dire claims of industry just don't really hold water when it comes to the reality of what's happened. Now, yes, certain industries are going to have to do more, but in some cases that means, uh, you know, steel mills or power plants some of them are already equipped with pollution controls. They're just going to have to operate those more frequently and more efficiently. And there are other rules coming down the pike, cleaner vehicles, for example. You know, there, there are these pledges to move towards an all-electric vehicle fleet and, and truck and tra- you know, truck and trains. So Metro is even talking about buying electric locomotives to, for commuter trains. So the the economy is generally moving in that direction towards a cleaner economy. Uh, there's a lot of federal money out there uh, coming from the bipartisan infrastructure law, where you know, 
agencies like the Chicago Transit Authority are going to be able to buy more clean electric buses. You've got a school bus manufacturer in the Joliet area making electric school buses. You know, over in Belvedere near Rockford, the uh, Stellantis factory used to be Chrysler, um, recently announced that they're going to be retooling that plant to build more electric vehicles. So, again, uh, cleaner air is potentially on the horizon. Chicago, though, has a, has a problem with this because we, we are such a freight hub and we have so much mm. diesel truck and, and, and diesel locomotive traffic. Uh, I wrote a story during the pandemic when all around the world, because of you know the economic shutdown, because of the COVID pandemic, uh, there were clear skies because factories had closed and, 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 and you know people weren't on the roads. Uh, but that wasn't the case in Chicago because freight was still moving. You know, Amazon packages were still being delivered, and uh, we had high levels of soot. At, at one point during 2020, uh, we had dirtier air than Los Angeles, which is infamously the most dirty yeah. air, the, the place with the dirtiest air in the United States. So it's going to be a little bit tougher here because the law doesn't get at locomotives and, and trucks the way it does get at power plants and, mm-hmm. and factories. But again, there are a bunch of regulations coming down the pike separate from this that'll help drive our region and also the country as a whole towards a cleaner future. So when I'm driving, especially on an expressway and I get behind a, a diesel truck and there's that terrible smell that that fills the car is part of what I'm breathing in at that point, uh, teeny tiny particles of soot? Is it a diesel engine thing, too? Yeah, it sure is. Diesel soot is one of the most dangerous uh, forms of soot. Actually, coal, burning of coal is the most dangerous, a recent study found. Um, but you know, there are researchers who have looked at, uh, at, at exposure to soot during commuting times, this was in the Los Angeles area, but it's it's uh, uh, you know uh, really uh, could be extrapolated to any metropolitan area with traffic and a lot of diesel trucks on the roads. And uh, they estimated that five percent of your exposure comes from your daily commute. Now that was a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when people were more and more people were going downtown. You know, I, I get on the Kennedy sometimes, and it's just as busy as it was I know. You know, before the pandemic. So um, I thought everybody was working from home. I, I did too, but you know, I'm, you're still stuck in traffic. Uh, you know, pretty much any day you're on the Kennedy. So yeah. even with you know, without the the, uh, the construction work that recently wrapped up. So um, yeah, that's that's you know, it it you're, you are breathing soot that way. Um, but, you know, the research has shown that communities, neighborhoods near uh, rail lines, rail freight yards, you know, intermodal transit yards and highways are disproportionately impacted by this soot pollution. And in most parts of the country, that means that communities of color, black and Latino especially, are being disproportionately exposed to this pollution. And many of those communities already have a lot of other uh, factors that are impacting health, public health in those communities. This just makes it worse. One quick question. Last time I had you on, there was something I wanted to get to, and we ran out of time. We still have um, a couple of minutes left. I've been reading, you know, you and I have talked about microplastics, but now I'm reading about nano 
plastics. Is it the same thing? Is this different? Is this worse? Tell me what a nanoplastic is. It's just smaller than a microplastic. So think about, you know, like a plastic water bottle or something like that. It's, you know, it's a, it's a big piece of plastic over time. It's in, 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 in the environment, it's going to break down into smaller bits of plastic. Um, and then also you have, you know, a lot of, of, of what we're seeing now in terms of the, the microplastics and, and nanoplastics come from all of our synthetic clothing that we wear. So every time we wear, uh. say, a fleece jacket or a pair of, you know, workout pants, these little particles are, are, are you know, are coming off of the garment, washing down, go straight through the sewer system and into our lakes and rivers. And that's how a lot of these microplastics and nanoplastics end up in our drinking water. So conventional treatment doesn't filter these things out. And you know, increasingly, researchers are finding that they could, these particles, these small bits of plastic, could be causing health harms. So, you know, other toxic chemicals can basically hitch a ride on these nanoplastics or microplastics and get into our bodies. They already are. And, and so they're, they're trying to figure out more about just how much of an impact uh, this is, this is uh, you know, having on our, on our health. But the early, early results from the research don't sound very good. And interestingly enough, there was recently in California, there was a bill passed by the legislature that would require appliance manufacturers to install plastics filters on on uh, washing machines. You know, much how you know how we have uh, lint traps on the dryer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so this is this would be on the on the washer filtering out those plastics. Now, the, the supposed you know, progressive governor of, of uh, California, Gavin Newsom, vetoed that bill uh, because the the, uh, the appliance industry, you know, lobbied vociferously against it. There are a bunch of aftermarket uh, products that you can buy that basically hook up to your your washer. Uh, some companies like Patagonia that you know is, is uh, you know tries to convey a, a, an environmentally friendly image and is always trying to do uh, more things to reduce their negative imprint or footprint in the world. Uh, they sell these bags that you can put your, you know, workout pants and fleece jackets in and, you know, keeps the plastic particles from washing down the drain. Um, Michael, know, we're, we're, I, I would love stuff, to it's, continue it's, it's, it's this discussion, issue. but we are, uh, we are out of time. Michael Hawthorne, uh, Chicago Tribune environmental reporter, Thank you. Thank you for bringing us the latest on what the EPA is doing. I appreciate you you sharing that. Thanks so much for having me. Sure, Michael. Thank you. That's going to do it for me. Uh, Patty is out today. She has a guest host, but her show will be wonderful as always. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Remember, Richard Chu will be here at 6 a.m. to start our day on WCPT. Give him a listen. Give him a call. Um, See you tomorrow. Have a great evening. Good night.